the president's remarks to a group in a parking lot opposite the Texas Hotel in Fort Worth, Texas, November 22, 1963. Mr. Vice President, Jim Wright, Governor, Senator Yarbrough, Mr. Botka, ladies and gentlemen, there are no faint hearts in Fort Worth, and I appreciate I appreciate your being here this morning. I, Mrs. Kennedy is organizing herself. It takes longer, <laughs> but of course she looks better than we do. At a hotel bar in Dallas, the televisions on the walls were as long as coffins and twice as wide. On one, a basketball game, its colors unnaturally vivid. On the other, preview for a special on the Manson murders, followed by an ad for teriyaki salmon and butterfly shrimp, the food grotesquely outsized, bouncing through curls of flame. At another table, sitting alone, a woman chattered loudly on her phone. I feel like you might outgrow him. You're so type A, so super smart. I feel you might outgrow him. A waiter passed near, and the woman swirled the dregs of her wine. And may I get another glass? I finished my dinner and opened my notebook, started gleaning images from the day's drive, harvest of a pilgrim road. Double D Lounge, Thunderbird Liquor, Flashdance Cabaret, dogs on chains huddled in the shade in window units leaking water, Church of Apostolic Lightning, Church of the Brethren, Church of the Word. Black widow webs in a junked-out car and someone talking antichrist on the radio. At the gas station, in the toilet, a delicate sketch of the sacred heart across the corner of the ceiling. But on the wall beside the mirror and sink, a curved cartoon phallus with a pink swastika tip. The counter-attendant had a jasmine lily flower tattooed on his forearm. She was still learning when she did it, he told me. I've been letting my daughter practice tattooing on me since she was 13. When I got to the hotel that evening, through the window of my room on the 20th floor, I saw, in golden light, as the sun drifted down to the sky's edge, the sprawl of the city to the west of downtown, the gleam of the Trinity River snaking through its bottomlands. I took a picture through the glass. It seemed much like the landscape from my dream, the dream of the great steel fish and the ruined city on the plain. I stood at the window for several minutes, watching the sunset, and felt that familiar, peculiar sense of, what would I call it? God's peace? God's grace? A creeping thing, a warmth, a sweetness of the heart, an upwelling from within, from that half-hidden place where the senses and mind converge, where all the assorted parts of me combine to form the whole. A sense of reality, William James wrote of it, a feeling of objective presence, a perception of what we may call something there. It's not faith, per se, though it is perhaps one of faith's symptoms, nor is it constant, only a glimpse of bright blue sky behind a bank of roiling cloud. 
impossible to pinpoint, and often frustrating to describe, a temptation might arise to cast it aside, to appease Occam in search for the explanations most satisfying to the unquiet, empirical mind. An example of pathological activity in the temporal lobe, or perhaps the sink between the hemispheres of my brain came undone, and what I always take to be the touch of God is only my left brain vaguely aware of its lost and isolated sibling, a voice like John's crying in the wilderness. And if I cracked open my skull and dug deep through delicate layers of personality, memory, control, and response, I might eventually find a collection of cells grown out of control and pushing, a god from whom I could be delivered by the surgeon's knife for death. Or is that upwelling, that sweetness, instead in simply what has always been preached, the good god of the universe, maker and destroyer of worlds, yet who knows me, loves me, and brought me to Dallas to see my dream again outside my window, and then to see Dealey Plaza, the scene of the crime, in the dead of night, in the dark. You can have two types in your life at once, said the woman with the wine, still on her phone. My recommendation is to have one type in one place and one in another, so you can go back and forth. When the waiter passed by, I ordered another glass of beer. When I spoke to him, I tried to appear as lucid as possible, completely calm and in control, not half drunk, not frightened. My plan for that night was simple, if undeniably stupid. I would drink beer until the bar closed, or close to it, after which I would walk a few short blocks to Dealey Plaza, Omphalos, the new frontier, to see that place apart from the bustle of the day, the tourists and the city traffic, to stand at the corner of Houston and Elm, below the sniper's nest in the light of the moon. And then... Ghosts are troublesome things in a house or in a family, wrote Patrick Pierce, the Irish patriot. There is only one way to appease a ghost. You must do the thing it asks you. This is Lidwine, Imagination for the Remnant, Season 1, with work by Anna Key, Rachel Kennedy, Mary R. Finnegan, and Stephen Cramp, and featuring the music of the Cimarron Kings. I'm your host, Brian Kennedy. This is Episode 2, Vandals at the Golden Gate, Part 1. Elijah says to Ahab, get a drink, man, ease your pain. The Lord who poured out fire is finally going to pour some rain. Scoop it all up in a pretty little cup, boiled in seraphim flame, and gather the tribes to pour some tea for tea. Prolegomena, a poem by Anna Key. 
Maybe it will all go up in flames and we can begin again. Who among us doesn't walk on broken glass, sweeping up the pieces as they go? Only a dead man has lived a whole life. Somewhere in the midst of all this static, a clear signal is waiting to break through. These were the words she spoke when she was speaking. It's curious now. Some days you'd swear she's gone for good. You call and call and no one ever answers. Penelope, she knew the secret of the shroud, that life is a perpetual unweaving. I knew a man in Christ. Once upon a time, after he ate from a bag of magic mushrooms, saw in the summer moon the face of Christ the King staring down at him, wearing a golden crown and a full brown beard, with silver saucer eyes and white, white teeth, gleaming, a Christ of the blazing parousia, as though intent on devouring the earth, piece by piece. At the time, this puzzled my friend, bothered him even. He was no longer a believer, and on some level, I think, felt cheated. To take psychedelics and see God was one thing, however cliched. But to wind up at the mercy of a vision so conventional, so orthodox, was frankly dispiriting. The vision passed quickly, but its memory remained for years, nagging at him, worrying him, until he re-entered the church at last to his delight. There are human footprints on the moon from 12 American men sent in pairs. Each passage made, of course, in the name of pagan divinity, Apollo, the twin, the archer, the god of music, the god of prophecy and plague. From Delphi, for 12 centuries or more, his priestess in her frenzy counseled the Greeks, Croesus, Lycurgus, even Socrates. From Didyma, in the 4th century, she urged Diocletian to resume the persecution of Christians throughout his empire, bodies torn limb from limb by clever machines or fed for sport to animals. His efforts, to say the least, were unsuccessful. Within a decade, Constantine's vision of the cross his apprehension of its power would fix the course of Christendom for 16 centuries until a young nation, still in its salad days, precocious, pragmatic, bloody-minded, a nation seemingly ordained by providence as heir to all the ancient West's legacy of both promise and regret, until that nation invaded the heavens atop a Saturn V rocket in the name of both the old gods, and the new. On Christmas Eve 1968, the crew of the first manned mission to the precincts of the moon, Apollo 8, read aloud from the book of Genesis to conclude a live television broadcast from the moon's orbit. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Hearing this, 
NASA Flight Director Gene Kranz wept openly at Apollo Mission Control. I cried, he remembered, and that's all there is to it. There are a lot of times in my life when I've been brought to tears by just the power, the immensity, the beauty of what we were doing, and this was one of those days. Months later, in July 1969, after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin of Apollo 11 lighted upon the lunar surface at the Sea of Tranquility, Aldrin, a Presbyterian, having carried with him into space a small parcel of bread and wine, took communion in the lunar module and read to himself silently a passage from the Gospel of John. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me, and I in him, will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Aldrin had hoped to read the passage aloud for broadcast, but the Christmas Eve message from Apollo 8 having angered certain atheist gadflies of the time, NASA officials asked Aldrin to keep his commemoration quiet and private, and he obliged. Instead, a small step for a man, a giant leap for mankind, with no mention of God to sully the occasion. The Apollo 11 astronauts, while on the moon, took a congratulatory call from President Richard M. Nixon, whose predecessor and nemesis, John F. Kennedy, set the entire Apollo program in motion. That Nixon be the one to preside over the attainment of Kennedy's goal of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth by the end of the decade is no small irony, especially given the fact that while Apollo 11 was in transit to the moon, news broke of the involvement of Senator Edward M. Kennedy, the former president's youngest brother, in the drowning death of Mary Jo Kopechny, a Chappaquiddick, an event which ultimately dashed any hopes of a Kennedy restoration to the presidency, that family whose fortunes defined the decade, who brought us to the moon, who brought us to and rescued us from the brink of nuclear catastrophe. A dark people, Steinbeck called the Irish, with a gift for suffering way past their deserving. For the genuine legacy of America's first Catholic president was in neither the Apollo program nor the missile crisis, but in an outpouring of significance far beyond the ken of technological excellence or expertise. Norman Mailer, in hearing the first astonishing eyewitness reports from the moon, maintained it was as if a man were descending step by step, heartbeat by diminishing heartbeat, into the reign of the kingdom of death itself, and he was reporting, inch by inch, what his senses disclosed. Hyperbole, however poetic. For Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had indeed gone to the moon, but no further. Instead, it was John Fitzgerald Kennedy, 35th President of the United States, poor old glamorous Jack himself, like Orpheus, who'd gone alone into the underworld. I remember first reading about it as a boy, 
in a worn paperback I picked up at a library book sale. A gruesome tale of Once Upon a Time. How a young man, Lee Harvey Oswald, after spending a night in the suburbs with his family, a Russian wife and two small daughters, caught a ride into the city with a friend to his job downtown on the edge of Dealey Plaza at the Texas School Book Depository. Oswald carried with him into the car a bulky package wrapped in brown paper. What's in the bag? the friend asked. The answer? Curtain rods. Dallas, Texas, November 22, 1963. Senator Ralph Yarborough, himself in the president's motorcade that day, a Friday, later told reporters at Parkland Hospital where Kennedy was rushed after being shot. Gentlemen, this has been a deed of horror. Excalibur has sunk beneath the waves. Such unintended yet unabashed burlesque is commonplace when studying Kennedy's death. The naked facts, unendurable and irreducible, are clothed as a species of grief in rich garments of metaphor or conspiracy, Shem and Japheth covering their father's shame. A deed of horror, certainly, but that Yarborough should mention in that moment Arthur's sword, jeweled and gleaming, cleanly uncoupled from the mortal world, and not Arthur himself, pierced to the tay of the brain, is telling. No kingly barge appeared in Dallas that day, bound for Avalon, from whence men say that he shall come again and he shall win the Holy Cross. Instead, a motorcycle officer of the Dallas Police Department, observing the presidential limousine after its arrival at Parkland, noted part of Kennedy's skull was laying on the floorboard. Blood and brain material was splattered all over, as if a ripe watermelon had been dropped. I didn't see anything isolated when the president was hit, one eyewitness in Dealey Plaza recounted. There was just an explosion. It was almost like a pond hit with water, and water flew up. The plaza itself, named for Dallas newspaperman George Bannerman Dealey, is unbearably small, much smaller in person than cameras suggest, as intimate as a boudoir or a grave. The photographs and films of the killing fail to capture this closeness. Even the shock of Zapruder's frame 313, the president's blood poured out like dust, his brains like dung. As Zapruder saw through the rangefinder Kennedy's head, quote, explode like a firecracker, unquote, is deadened by the pseudo-silence of the celluloid veil. To paraphrase Charles Williams, the film, like a pocket crucifix, preserves pain, but somehow lacks obscenity. Recall that as he finished filming that day, Zapruder admits he was screaming. For Kennedy, it was the most public-private moment of his life, Jonathan Miller later wrote in The New Yorker. The publicity was total, and what it did was to conceal, in the very instant that it exposed, the inexorable solitude of dying. Miller's observation is borne out, strangely enough, by the Zapruder film itself. 
for even in the wake of that final shot to the head, its moist red blaze, with Kennedy collapsing, falling like cold driving rain toward an undiscovered country, into the crowded keep of death, even then the eye attends elsewhere. The drama unfolds instead among the living, caught in the spectacle offered by Mrs. Kennedy, Queen Persephone, in a bloodied dress, fleeing her seat and crawling aboard the back of the Lincoln, met there by Secret Service agent Clint Hill, codenamed Dazzle, come running too late from the follow-up car after the second shot. Such is the active conspiracy of the living toward the dead we barely notice, much less regret. Like Hill's hapless colleagues, who upon seeing their president slain immediately turned their attention toward the motorcade's fourth car, toward Lyndon Johnson, their new charge. Better luck next time, fellas. We the living have journeyed onward, beyond what was for another, a final, failed moment. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. I woke that next morning at the hotel in Dallas, chagrined. My plan of the night before, to visit Dealey Plaza in the dark, a failure. I simply lost my nerve. I drank beer until the bar closed, or close to it, but then retired to my room and passed out with the television blaring. A documentary about the war in Vietnam, as I recall. So, that morning, after a late start, I walked to Dealey in the bright sunshine stood at the corner of Houston and Elm, clambered atop the plinth where Zapruder stood. Taped on the pavement of Elm Street, as it sloped down toward the triple underpass, was an X marking the spot where Kennedy died, his skull shattered by the final shot. The plaza already swarmed with tourists. Pilgrims, rather. Over a million every year. People milled about, singly or in groups, pointing, whispering, staring. Some even ran out into the street during gaps in the traffic, stood at the X on the pavement, cameras aimed toward the sixth floor of what once was the Texas School Book Depository. But the sniper's nest kept now as a museum piece, as though they could somehow capture in a picture a fatal bullet hurtling toward them through an elemental ether of remembrance. President Kennedy wasn't the only man to die that day, November 22, 1963, nor even the only public figure. Shortly before the assassination, the writer C.S. Lewis died at his home in Oxford, England, collapsing at the foot of his bed after a lengthy illness. In Los Angeles, it was another British writer, Aldous Huxley, dying of laryngeal cancer. That morning, he instructed his wife to inject him with 100 micrograms of LSD, and as he faded toward the pulsing, pleasing light of dissolution later that evening, she read to him aloud, and the bardo told all, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. In the preceding decade, Huxley had styled himself an evangelist of both perennial philosophy and psychedelic practice, whilst all the while maintaining with aplomb the costume of an English pedant endlessly clever, but seldom wise. 
in The Doors of Perception, he described, under the influence of mescaline, seeing what Adam had seen on the morning of his creation, the miracle, moment by moment, of naked existence. Pied Piper of a new Aquarian age, Huxley wouldn't live to see the children of the West take up their generation's struggle, not against fascism or world war or anything so mundane, but against the very mind-forged manacles of the human condition itself, helped along by that precision bombing of consciousness offered by the wonder drugs of the era. As Tom Wolfe would chronicle so adroitly in the electric Kool-Aid acid test, the counterculture's plan was simply to spread out like a wave over the world and end all the bullshit, drown it in love and awareness, and nothing could stop them. To that end came a fate at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, California, on January 14, 1967, styled A Gathering of the Tribes for a Human Be-In, the date chosen by an astrologer as dawn of an age when all those now alive on earth finally outnumbered the dead. A new nation has grown inside the robot flesh of the old, a press release for the happening announced. Before your eyes, a new, free, vital soul is reconnecting the living centers of the American body. Advertisements promised a circus-like panoply of celebration with saints, symbols, banners, flags, flutes, families, heroes, heads, drums, incense, chimes, children, feathers, candles, animals, lovers, quote, all SF rock bands, unquote, even nude dancing and all for free. 20,000 or more attended. The speakers spoke, the bands played, and a masked parachutist touched down in the midst to the delight of the crowd. Turn on, tune in, and drop out, counseled Dr. Timothy Leary, late of Harvard University. Turn on to the scene, tune in to what is happening, and drop out. High school, college, grad school, junior executive, senior executive, and follow me the hard way. It may seem, all of it, highly exciting, CBS News reported later that year, deep in the summer of love. A pleasurable trip into Wonderland, until one begins to wonder about destinations. The writer, Anna Eastnin, who knew Huxley, Leary, and other psychedelic gurus early in the decade, was troubled by their burgeoning impact on American culture. In her journal, in the summer of 1962, she wrote, I realized that the expression, blow my mind, was born of the fact that America had cemented access to imagination and fantasy, and that it would take dynamite to remove this block. No one had taught them how to dream, to transcend outer events and read their meaning. They had been deprived of all such spiritual discipline. It was a scientific culture, a technological culture. It was logical that they would believe in drugs, drugs of all kinds, curative, tranquilizing, stimulating, and logically, dream-inducing drugs. The true believers of the era saw in frail humanity 
in our fragile institutions a compromise no longer to be born, and a special opportunity for America's celebrated century, which in hindsight seems the sort of can-do optimism that wrought at the foot of Mount Sinai, the golden calf itself. Even bearing in mind the 58,000 American dead, the untold number of Vietnamese killed or maimed, including Ngo Dinh Diem, president of South Vietnam, a devout Catholic, murdered in an American-sponsored coup less than three weeks before Kennedy's assassination. Over the long durée, what appreciable difference was there really between the stay-combed rigor of Robert McNamara at the Pentagon with his charts and briefings and body counts and the benighted and benumbed denizens of Haight-Ashbury running enlightenment to ground with blotter tabs of acid. Each side of the divide in those best and brightest days, despite the rhetoric, believed in the capacity of rational men to control irrational commitments. We thought for a moment, Kennedy advisor Arthur Schlesinger recalled wistfully, that the world was plastic and the future unlimited. Imminentizing the eschaton, they used to call it, heaven on earth, and wrought by man. The tribes gathered, yes, but the Messiah was us. And the rest was fashion, but fruitful. After all, it was not McNamara who gave us the sprawling tent cities of present-day San Francisco and elsewhere, where the new armies of the night, strange anchorites, have fastened. Their taste for God's own flesh forsworn for other, darker sacraments, perched on the precipice of madness. But for Aldous Huxley, on November 22, 1963, all of this was immaterial. Instead, it was his last afternoon as himself, no longer Adam on the morning of creation, but Adam on his deathbed, with Eve beside him, remembering Abel remembering Cain. Aldous had not consciously looked at the fact that he might die until the day he died, his wife recalled. Not once consciously did he speak of it. It was not so for President Kennedy, who already before that day received the last rites of the church multiple times for various accidents and ailments stretching back to childhood. His favorite poem famously was Alan Seeger's I Have a Rendezvous with Death, and to please him, his wife, Jackie, learned to recite it from memory, presumably in that breathy, stylized voice of hers, like a female Capote. Just imagine. But I've a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town when spring trips north again this year. And I, to my pledged word, am true. I shall not fail that rendezvous. O son of noble family, now the time has come for you to seek a path. I once found, in a box of family heirlooms, tucked inside my grandmother's St. Joseph Missal from the time, President Kennedy's funeral prayer card from 1963, his portrait on the front, black-bordered, and on the back first a quote from St. Ambrose. We have loved him during life, 
let us not abandon him until we have conducted him by our prayers into the house of the Lord. And then, my Jesus, have mercy on the soul of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. An indulgence of five hundred days granted to all the faithful who pray for the President's repose. In January 1964, two weeks before the Beatles first arrived in America, the magazine TV Guide included in its regular weekly issue a special section devoted entirely to the television coverage surrounding the assassination of the president only two months earlier. Introduced by none other than Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy's successor, it billed itself as a permanent reminder of the nation's television experience. When Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, it declaimed, Americans had time to assimilate the tragedy. Most people in the big cities knew within 24 hours, but there were some in outlying areas for whom it took days. In the new world of communications, there was no time for any such babying of the emotions, no time to collect oneself, no time for anything except to sit transfixed before the set and try to bring into reality this monstrous, unthinkable thing. Because the word was not only instantaneous, but visual. Television, quote, had shown that it did indeed deserve to be called the window of the world, and that the window was capable of encompassing not just life's trivia, but the deepest of human experience, unquote. Left unsaid, unargued, unreflected upon was whether television might not be something entirely different from what its boosters proclaimed that it might instead, in every instance, exalt the trivial and trivialize the momentous. The murder, for instance, of Lee Harvey Oswald, the president's alleged assassin, in Dallas on the morning of Sunday, November 24, 1963, broadcast live and watched by nearly half of all American families, many just returned home from their Sunday worship of choice. Oswald himself cast in this disquieting Camelot, as King Arthur's final companion, Sir Lucan, foaming at the mouth, and part of his guts lay at his feet. Gripping television, certainly, but whether a medium that brought murder into America's living rooms might be inimical to the nation's interests, sinful even, is passed over in silence. A window on the world, yes, but Some windows are not meant for our eyes. To glance through the glass and see two strangers screwing on your front lawn is one thing. To sneak into their backyard for a glimpse into their bedroom is another beast entirely. Whether television has ever proved itself the one or the other is ambiguous at best. That Noah got drunk after piloting the ark to safety on Ararat might be the news, of course, but... We still don't need to see his balls. Immediacy is not a cardinal virtue. Perhaps that's too harsh. It's certainly too harsh. For after Oswald's murder came the televised splendor of the president's state funeral on Monday, the 25th of November. The caisson, the caparisoned horse, the widow and her children, the eternal flame. But also, a pontifical requiem low mass 
at St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, presided over by what one attendee called the most grating priestly voice in Christendom, that of Richard J. Cushing, the Cardinal Archbishop of Boston. There's something very admirable, Aldous Huxley had written a friend years earlier, about the way Catholicism turns what by itself is a merely physiological and painfully animal process, dying, into something of cosmic significance, a dignified and tragic act of greatest importance. Huxley himself was cremated without ceremony on Sunday the 24th, the day of Oswald's death. Strange that the nation and the world should be initiated via television into the sacred mysteries of the Church in all its Latin pomp and circumstance, so shortly before so many of those trappings were swept away by the liturgical reforms of the Second Vatican Council. Indeed, in no small irony, the bishops of the council voted to accept the schema outlining those sweeping changes on Friday, November 22, 1963, the day of the president's death in Dallas. In the mind and in the heart, the images of that November remain. Ghosts in our mansion's corridors, startling us in their persistence. But when you live with ghosts for too long, you grow weary of surprise, grow accustomed to those who drift in and out of shadow, and so often mistake shade or substance, forgetting flesh and blood. Which is to say, if we remember via television, via images alone, we remember very little. Of Officer J.D. Tippett of the Dallas Police Department, for instance, a father of three, also shot to death by Oswald that Friday. But Tippett wasn't killed in front of a camera, and so remains an afterthought. Or even Jack Ruby, Oswald's killer, exemplar of American grotesque, captured in the news footage, of course. But how do we square those images with the thought of Ruby sitting in his jail cell, awaiting trial, ashamed of his lisp, and so practicing, for clarity's sake, for his moment in the spotlight, the biblical names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and... A multitude of details, coalescing toward plenitude, for which the proliferation of man's images can never account, however long we sit transfixed before the set and summon before us every monstrous, unthinkable thing. Thomas Mann, in The Magic Mountain, wrote of certain difficult and unpredictable elements at work in our reckoning of time, that certain stories, having taken place before a certain turning point, on the far side of a rift cut deeply throughout our lives and consciousness, might actually be older than orbits around the sun could account for. For Mann's generation, that rift, that turning point, was the First World War, with whose beginning, he noted, so many things began, whose beginning, it seems, have not yet ceased. For Americans, 
In the latter half of the 20th century, and even into the 21st, that turning point is instead and undoubtedly Dallas, in November 1963, with what another writer, himself a countryman, called the seven seconds that broke the back of the American century. There is, in our reckoning of that calamity, a basic and understandable before and after, but with the continuity between the two garbled, as though the white noise of the president's murder interrupted some necessary and unrepeatable broadcast communique from our ancestors, warning of the family method and how to think, how to feel, how to live. In 1950, only 9% of American households had a television. In 1963, over 90%. In 1969, over 600 million people worldwide watched Armstrong and Aldrin of Apollo 11 land on the moon. In 1972, only a little over three years later, during the mission of Apollo 17, to this date, mankind's last visit to the moon, the New York Times, in a back-page story titled Apollo 17 Coverage Gets Little Viewer Response, noted that While most observers agree on the importance of the moon exploration for science and for history, the fact is that pictures, no matter how incredibly good their technical quality of barren moonscapes and floating astronauts, become ordinary and even tedious rather quickly. So much for Mailer's thrill of descending step by step into the reign of the kingdom of death. America's attention had drifted elsewhere, perhaps realizing, if only instinctively, that in that dream kingdom comes a chill from which no spacesuit, no garment of skin can shield us. That work instead is left to the garments of glory, the full armor of God, the Word made flesh. I am the vine, and you are the branches, the Lord proclaimed. I go before you to prepare a place for you. But in our childish enthusiasms, we ceased to follow and instead struck out on our own, alone, away from the word, toward an undiscovered country. Ladies and gentlemen, the Cimarron Kings. Elijah says to Ahab, get a drink, man, ease your pain. 
spine A hillbilly boy to roll out tea for Texas Hey you, what you gonna do for me? the conclusion of the weird tale, The Widow and the Orphan, by Rachel Kennedy, read by the author, the second of two parts. One night, Karen fell asleep on the couch watching television. She dreamt of her mother, who died when she was still a girl. Her mother stood just beyond a stream surrounded by tall grass. She smiled and waved to Karen, who was standing on the opposite bank. Mom, I have so much to tell you. Stay there and I'll cross to you. When she looked down, the stream was a rushing river, and Colin was now beside her mother. He raised his hands in warning. Stay, Karen. Stay where you are and take what's been given. No, let me swim to you. I can do it. I know I can. The river was now as vast as the sea. She dove in and felt the cold water rushing over her. A firm embrace circled around her, and she felt herself lifted out of the water and into the sky. I'm flying again. I've dreamt this before, she said. 
you're being carried, a voice returned. Colin? Is it you? Colin, I'm so tired. I keep walking, but I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I know, Karen. Go back to bed. All will be well. Why can't I see you? Is it because I'm dreaming? No, the voice answered. It's because I won't let you. Let me see your face one more time before I wake up. Let me see you well again. At first she saw eyes red and gold like honey and they frightened her. Colin, I can't see you. Who is this holding me? Here. Look here. The voice seemed to start at a distance and then moved in close. It was Colin's eyes she now saw, pale, blue light shining out at her. Stay, Colin. Stay with me, she begged quietly. Let me never wake up. You are awake, the voice spoke. The next thing she remembered was waking up in the morning light in her own bed. It was early summer when the weather suddenly grew hot. Karen went into the basement to find a pair of shorts for David. They were small, but she didn't think it would be a problem. David didn't want to wear them, though. He kept complaining that they hurt. She became angry and impatient. It was not like David to fuss over clothing. At last, she yelled at him. He grew quiet and left to use the bathroom. When Karen was finally ready to go for a walk, she stood at the front door and called to him, but he never came. She looked around the house and found him upstairs between the door of his closet and the wall. He was crying. What happened, David? Are you all right? My shorts, Mama. I told you I don't like them. Honey, they're fine. I'll get you new ones soon. I told you these are just for today. They hurt. They're hurting my body. They're just shorts, David. You're being dramatic. No, they're cutting me. They're cutting my body. Mama, please. She pulled him out of the corner a little too hard by his arm and started to get angry, but the look on his face stopped her. It was like the face of an adult diminished in the body of a child. David, honey, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have pulled you like that. I'm sorry. No, you shouldn't have, Mama. I'm sorry. Mom. She was squatting down in front of him. What? She brushed his hair from his face with her fingers. Look. He pulled the waistband down on his shorts, and there was a bruise, a blue ring going around his body. On his left hip was blood. She gasped and put her hands over her mouth. Oh my God, honey, what is that? I told you the shorts don't fit. That's not possible, she thought. It's not possible. Mommy, Mom. She didn't hear him. She was kneeling now, staring at the blood that was seeping from his side. Mommy. His voice was faint and pleading. I'm sorry, dear. I'm so sorry. You can take these off. It's okay. She helped him out of his shorts and brought him to the bathroom. Karen wiped away the blood that didn't seem to be coming from any scrape she could find, but rather seemed to be oozing from the pores of his skin. She went to the sink to wash the blood from the washcloth, thinking about the pain in his eyes, how much they looked like his father's eyes the day he knew he was dying. She knelt back down by David, but looked at the floor to hide her sadness. He stopped her with his hands, holding her face. He kissed her forehead. I'm going to get dressed now, he said. Wait, let me see you. He was so small, standing on the bathroom tile in his underwear, it broke her heart, thinking how weak he was. 
I'm okay. I'm all better now. See? He pointed to his waist, and the blood and bruising were completely gone. She put her hands to her mouth, then back to David's body, turning him around to examine him. I don't understand. There was a bruise. You were bleeding. No, it was just too tight. I'm okay, Mom, really. Can we walk now? She nodded, but she was afraid. He went to leave the bathroom when she stopped him one last time. Honey, why didn't you just take off your shorts? Because you told me not to. He ran back to his room, humming to himself. On the walk, he held her hand the way he always liked to, but he didn't speak. She wondered if he was still upset. They walked the trails behind the house that led to a small creek. The water was high from all the rain, and he climbed a rock to stand above it. Be careful, David. I will. He jumped down and started throwing stones into the water. She watched him and tried not to worry about all the strange things that kept happening. David threw a rock into the water and it splashed onto Karen. Sorry, Mom, I didn't know it would do that. Are you okay? I'm fine, honey. It's just water. Why don't you come down from there so we can keep walking? He scrambled down the rock and picked up a flat stone to skip over the surface. It was the same water Colin used to baptize their son. One summer morning when David was still an infant, they walked down to the water to get out of the house before the afternoon heat. Colin took his shoes off and rolled up his jeans. He held David and kissed him. Then he walked into the water, and Karen panicked. Colin, what are you doing? I'm baptizing my boy, that's what I'm doing, he laughed. What the hell are you talking about? Now, Karen, hell is exactly what we're trying to avoid. He ran water over the baby's head and said the words that sounded like a spell to her. She expected David to cry, but he didn't. Colin kissed the boy again and said, Now he's my son forever. No, he's not. You just gave him away. What you give to God, he gives back, Karen, and more. She watched David skip another stone and thought, That's not true because you're dead. A branch snapped behind her and she jumped. There was something in the woods. Hello? Who's there? She called. Mama, who are you talking to? Somebody's just off the path over there. David walked up to her. Where, Mama? I don't see anyone. Stay here. She walked closer to the edge of the woods and stepped in. Something moved among the leaves. Karen thought she saw an animal that went from standing on two legs moved to four. A bear, it's a bear, she whispered, backing slowly away. A moment later, a fox leapt out onto the path just 20 feet in front of them. It looked toward them and then dashed to the other side of the path back into the woods. Mom, did you see that? That was who you were talking to, he laughed. Karen smiled at him, and he grabbed her hand. Can we go home now? I'm hungry. Later that day, she sat with her coffee looking out a window that opened up to the hill by her house. It was another fox, or maybe the same one. She couldn't be certain. It was frolicking in the field again. She laughed because it looked happy. It began making its way closer to the house. David, David, come quick. You're going to miss it. I think that fox is back. I think it's the same one we keep seeing. She called to David and then went outside to get a closer look. When she rounded the corner of the house, she saw David walking with the fox back toward the woods. He had his hand on its back and he was talking to it. She couldn't hear what he was saying, 
but she could see that he was talking. And even stranger was the fox seemed to be listening. She followed behind them, trying not to make a sound. This isn't real. This can't be real, she thought. She lost them where the path split until she heard what sounded like birds taking flight. She thought it must be David frightening the birds as he moved down the path. She came to the creek where they had been earlier. This is a dream, just another dream, she thought. By the water were two creatures, white with black eyes, dark eyes like wells, she thought. They were like birds or bugs made of powder, snow-white powder, and stars swirling in the night sky. There were two of them. One was lifting water with its antennae and pouring it onto the other and speaking, in many voices, words like a spell. On the ground beside the water was the skin of a fox next to the face of her son. She fainted. When she woke in her bed, she wanted to believe it wasn't real, that none of it was real, and maybe even Colin was still alive. But she knew the truth. She thought of her son. David, I have to kill it. There are two. Oh, God, where's David? He's dead. The thing wearing her son's skin was watching her from a corner of the room. I know you think I killed him, but I didn't. I wanted him to live. I can't bring your kind back to life. I don't understand. How is he dead? You crashed near your home. I was there in another body. We can heal and fix things that are broken, but your son was dead. I wrapped your melting skin back on you and carried you home. I erased the accident. I can tell you don't believe me. I can hear you. I didn't say anything. You were thinking it. What are you? I'm a child. I'm not supposed to be here. There was another destination, but we didn't make it. I survived with only one other. We've been waiting here, but no one comes. No one will ever come. Where are you from? He pointed up. I don't remember my home, only the songs my mother sang. Why are you being my son? Because I love you, Mama. Don't call me that. You don't get to call me that. You're not my child. Please let me be your son. I watched my mother die. She was drowning and she reached out to me for help, but I couldn't get to her. The other who survived pulled me to safety. We'll never see our home again. We're so lonely. I like being with you. You don't have to be sad anymore. I want to live here, not as I was, but as I am. Karen stared at this child in silence for a while. At last she spoke. Show me who you are. Show me underneath my son. He walked over to her. Pull this up. He was holding the skin by the collarbone out to her. She stuck her fingers underneath and pulled it off like a Halloween costume. The face and body fell away to reveal a white figure, soft pollen with black eyes like wishing wells. But they weren't empty like her son's eyes when he was dead. These eyes looked upon her, and she saw love and mercy. It touched her head with its antennae, and she knew everything it knew. In her mind, she saw its mother drowning, saw the only memory of its home, 
dark skies with white flowers, saw it watching David when David was still alive, and felt its longing to go and play with her son. She learned how strong it was, too, how it could crush her if it wanted to, but it would never want to. She began to cry. It wiped her tears with its wings. Don't cry, Mama. She heard its real voice, like many voices, filled with love for her. Don't cry. I can't just forget David. I can't. You're not my son. It's wrong. Please. How can I pretend that nothing has changed when everything has changed? The other one is waiting for you, Mama. What do you mean? We can't bring things back to life, but we can fix life enough for ourselves. Daddy can be waiting for you. He can be waiting for you, and you don't have to be alone anymore. We need a home. We're so tired, so tired of being alone. How can Colin be waiting for me? We can all be a family. You don't need to do anything yet. The sun will be up in a few hours. Daddy will be just outside the door. If you want him, all you need to do is open the door, and we can be like this forever. We can change and be human forever. But if you don't, we'll leave. She threw her desires into his eyes that were like wells. It touched her face again. Sleep for now. Karen woke before the sun came up. The creature was not in David's bed. She couldn't find it anywhere. She went downstairs to the kitchen and waited. The sky grew lighter as the sun began to rise. There were footsteps coming up the back walkway. David, she called, but she knew it couldn't be him. They were too heavy to belong to a child. The steps came closer until she could see the silhouette of a man in the curtain of the kitchen door. It waited there saying nothing. Tears came to her eyes. David, David, I love you so much. The figure remained still and silent. Karen got up and went to the door. She put her hand to the curtain, but she didn't dare look. They remained listening to one another breathe for several minutes. At last, the figure turned to leave. Karen whispered aloud, Please forgive me. I have to find a way to live. She opened the door. A creature with her husband's face smiled at her. Karen, I'm here. I'm right here. I've missed you so much. She thought how different a face looks when it's worn by someone else. And even as she had this thought, something else happened. She smiled a real smile and said, Come in. Golgotha, Good Friday, a poem by Mary R. Finnegan. The crowds have all gone, scattering to secret rooms and dark corners. Their hunger and their healing, their relentless need, less pressing than the shame of knowing him. His hands and feet ache, blood thick, scalding, drips from his head into his eyes. He licks sour wine from a sweat-soaked rag as a soldier slips a sword into his side. His heartbeat plods, 
his lungs long to shrivel, muscle and tendon tear slowly from bone. His throat aches with thirst. And yet all of this is nothing, nothing, to the sheer forsakenness of that abandoned hillside where only his mother, a fisherman, a wayward woman, and a thief are left to hear his keening cry. When the hour comes, time stops. The sun and stars cease spinning. The world is uncreated, the universe undone. All that remains is this radiant atrocity.